We are in Romans chapter 2, looking at this wonderful, wonderful opportunity to look closely with a magnifying glass at God's judgment. And what is judgment? When we talk about God's judgment, what is that? And that's our desire, is to look at that and to have it fully explained. The reality that we talked about last week is is that because we take the time to look at it, it helps to understand the beauty and the full power and the full effect of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did when he died on the cross for our sins. What Jesus and what God has planned from eternity past to eternity future on to affect our life. And how does God judge all mankind? I want to remind you and just say it in case I miss it in a little bit, is is that where we are at in the text, in the context, it is the definition of how does God judge all things? It's the basis of judgment. It is not the basis of our salvation. It's not how we are deemed right in God's eyes. It's simply as Paul is launching into this definition of what does our complete salvation look like, he is first talking about man's rebellion, man's sin, and how God judges all of that compared to his holiness, to his complete, perfect, pure character. How are we judged when it comes to our guilty? compared to the Lord. It's not our salvation, and so we're going to be looking at that. It's the principle of how God exercised judgment, and what right does he have to do that? And so that is what we are looking this morning in verses 5 through uh, 10. We looked uh, quickly last week as we saw the, the basic principle that God's judgment will be based on his complete truth. It's not just... Uh, a partial truth or what one person's truth is over another. It's not relative. It's complete. It's God's completion throughout eternity. It's also based on his uh, timing. It's not, it, you can't escape judgment. We're all going to be held accountable for the things that we do. And then we see that it is just and is right. It is fair It's not based on what we deem as fair or what we feel. It's not based on some kind of feeling. It's based on God's righteousness, his justice. It is fair. Why is that? So we saw that last week, and that is because it is personal. God's judgment is a very personal thing. It's not impersonal. It's not based on groups. It's based on what you do personally, based on your heart. It's what's revealed in your heart. And now we're going to move on and look at that. So before you do, would you pray with me and ask God to bless our time and to help me to speak clearly and to help you to to listen uh, well this morning. I might be reading a lot because I have foggy brain. (laughs) So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is perfect. It helps us to understand so much about ourselves. 
It helps us to understand, understand so much about how great your salvation is. Lord, it, uh, it helps us to understand how deep and depraved man is in our thinking, in, in our flesh, in the rawest sense of who we are. We do not seek you, and, and we're incapable of seeking you because of our depravity. But Lord, it shows how great you are in your grace and your mercy and how you have revealed and help us to understand that we need you. We can't, we can't do this life on our own. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what judgment and your judgment really is and, the, and help us as we think about our walk and our life with you that we would rejoice and be glad for what you've done, not to run from your judgment, but to willingly face it. So, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our ears uh, to your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Listen to the text in verses 5 through 10. I cut this short last week. and didn't talk about the second point, partly because I wanted it to be clear. Didn't know that I was going to succumb to a cold and be sick. But I wanted it to be as clear as possible and to give enough time for us to understand what God is talking about here in his judgment. Verse 5, he says, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in doing, um, in well-doing, seek for glory and honor in immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. There will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. This is an interesting section when the reality is, is all through biblical history up to this point, we've seen basically two groups. We've seen the Jews, or we've seen the Israelites, God's chosen people, and then we've seen the Gentiles, or now Paul is talking about the Greek. It's always been separated into God's chosen uh, uh, people, and then the rest of all mankind. And that is true. But now he's actually separated said in God's judgment, and as he judges, he separates into two main groups of people. And we know that God's judgment is right, it is fair, it is judged, because it's based on every man's work. It's according to what people have done. Verse 6 clearly informs us, God is the one who will render to every man according to his work. Render is an interesting uh, term in the Greek. It means to pay or give back 
or to imply that there's a debt. There's a debt, and God's calling that debt. He's going to render back what everyone is due. In fact, the word carries the idea of an obligation. It's a responsibility. It's not optional. You're like, you know those optional debts? You know, like, you know, somebody does something nice to you and you kind of feel obligated. You're like, well, maybe I should go do something nice for them. This is not that. This is, you are actually, you are going to be, you're going to get what's coming to you based on your deeds. God will render everyone what they are due. God will return the judgment that's been saving up based on all of our actions. And it's, it's interesting as we look at this and we try to define that, Isaiah chapter 3 shares something very similar when he says, Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat the fruit of their action. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly for him, for what he deserves will be done to him. God will render according to each one's deeds. Which is interesting, because the whole world kind of separates the world based on those that are religious and those that are not religious. Or in the fact of the Bible, we see there are the Jews and then there are the Greeks or the Gentiles. There are the godly and then there are the ungodly. Paul is not teaching that this is our salvation is based on all of our works, but that God's judgment will be rendered to each one of us based on our works. Paul's not describing the basis for salvation, but the basis for judgment. Let me show you that this is not only in Isaiah 3.10, we saw this in verse 11, but also Jeremiah 32.19. It says, Great in counsel and mighty in deeds, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the Son of Men, giving to everyone according to his ways and according to the fruit of their deeds. God looks to all men and he sees the fruit of their deeds. Jeremiah 17, verse 10, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. Ezekiel 33, 20, the Lord says, O house of Israel, I will judge each of you, that's personal again, according to his ways. Matthew 16, Jesus talking in verse 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man is coming, is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and will then repay every man according to his deeds. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, he will also reap. I always like this one because sometimes we want, you know, we're like, where's my apples? Right? That's me. I'm always like, where's my apple pie? You know, I found it at the memorial service. There was apple pie for days. It was great. I went and got my apple pie. I went back and got my another apple pie. And then I went back and got my little bit of chocolate. So, <laughs> and I was looking for the ice cream, though. I couldn't find the ice cream. But I had some whipped cream instead. 
Maybe that's why I'm not feeling so good. <laughs> but we want apples, right? Or we want berries. And we go out looking to pick our fruits and we can't find it. And we're like, where's the fruit? And we only find thorns and thistles and weeds and, you know, all those horrible viney things that grow and, and take over and choke out the fruit. We wonder, where's the fruit? And I always love that passage because God's not mocked. I mean, if we're going to sow weeds, we're going to pick weeds, right? It's not going to be all, you know, apple pie and ice cream. It's not the way it is. God's not mocked. It says, for the one who sows of his flesh will also reap from his flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Ephesians 5, 6. After describing the evil deeds of the wicked, Paul warns, and he says this, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In fact, in Revelation, and it's the revelation about Christ, Revelation is not about all these futuristic things, and we get caught up into this spiritual thing that we focus on, we spiritualize it, but it's actually about the work of Christ being fulfilled, and it's about Christ. In verse uh, 23 of chapter 2, it says, and after telling how he will judge uh, those who will join uh, the immorality and the idolatry of the uh, women of Jezebel, the Lord warns the church of Thyatira, and he says this, I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Revelation 20, verse 12, and he says, at the great white throne of judgment, the dead who were judged from the things that were written in the books according to their deeds. Verse 12 of Revelation 22, and it says, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. The preacher and the theologian John Murray said it very succinctly in this you might have to think and ponder this a little bit, but he said this. He said, works without redemptive aspiration are dead works. So works without redemptive salvation are just plain dead works. Aspirations without good works is presumption. Paul and God is giving us, and he leads us to two groups in God's mind when it comes to judgment. There's the godly and the ungodly. There's the saved and the unsaved. There are those that God has redeemed and there are those that are not redeemed. Again, these two classes of people that he's giving us in verses 7 through 10 in Romans 2, these two groups, there's two judgments with these groups and there are two groups. It's according to their works. This is not according... This is not their works saving them or not saving them. This is all God's judgment and how God does judge. What's interesting in these two groups that God's talking about in verses 7 through 10 is the verbs. They're all in the present tense. In fact, it's speaking about a habit or the conduct of their lifestyle. It's what keeps coming back in their life. It's the habits that they have built their lifestyle on. Whether it's good habits or evil or bad habits. Both of which will reveal the true condition of one's heart. 
In fact, in verse 7, he says, to those who've become persistent in perseverance in doing good, or to those in verses 8 and 9, those who have persistent, continually to persistent in doing what is evil. Those are the two groups of people that God is going to be judging. In that, we're going to look at both of those groups and we're going to look at the judgments associated with each one of those groups that God is going to be judging completely in the future. The first one, in 2 Corinthians 5, 9-10, through 10, we have the judgment seat of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, verses 8-10, through 10, we see this judgment seat of Christ. And what is this judgment for and who is it for? It's for one of the groups that Paul is talking about here when he's defining God's judgment in verse 7. Verse 8, it says, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord, so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. That's the lifestyle of, this, of a believer, is their aim is to please the Lord. Verse 10, it says, for we must all appear. Who's the we? It is the believers. It's the body of Christ. Those that are making it their lifestyle to please the Lord. It says, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or whether evil. This is basically for those who persevere. These are believers only um, and it's for their reward of service, for doing what they've done in their deeds, according to whatever is good or whether is bad. And as a believer, we still struggle with sin. So, and there's things that God has given us our life with Christ. He has saved us. He's redeemed us. He's given us his righteousness. He said, be holy because I am holy. And he expects us to live based on that pattern. But we don't always do that, do we? We struggle. But one day, we're going to be held account for those deeds, whether they were good things that we did with what God gave us or whether they weren't so good. God calls them evil. This judgment seat of Christ are for those who persevere. By the way, this term of those who persevere that we see in the different verses that I gave you in your notes this is another way of talking about believers. You know, a lot of times we hear the term Christian or little Christ. We know that people that followed Christ, they were called this as a derogatory statement back in the day. It was in Antioch that in Syria that they first started calling people Christians to refer to those that follow Christ. But also, it was very common through history for those that were called those who persevere or the saints that persevere were basically were those that were called Christians. It means literally those who abide under the weight or heavy load of the world. It describes steadfastness, endurance, to, even though they are experiencing hard circumstances and difficulty. In fact, in Romans 15, verse 5, we understand why believers persevere. Why do they hold up under this weight of the world and, and the circumstances of life? It's because God gives perseverance to those who are part of the family of God. Romans 15, 5, it says, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement 
grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. It's God who gives us perseverance. As the body of Christ, when we are saved and we become part of the family of God, God, one of the gifts that God gives us is the ability to persevere. Psalm 97 and verse 10, we see it in the Old Testament, and it says, O you who love the Lord and hate evil, he perseveres, uh, he preserves the lives of the saints. He delivers them from the hands of the wicked. 2 Timothy 1.12 also speaks to this same aspect of perseverance. It's God who grants us perseverance, the ability to do that. Jude 21 and verse 24 says, Keep yourselves in the love of God. In verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in his presence of his glory, blameless and with great joy. He keeps you. He's able to keep you standing in the midst of struggles in the midst of your circumstances. And that's what Paul is talking about here when in verse 7 he says, those who persevere are those who are persistent in doing good. It's evident, and it's talking about a group of believers. God's going to judge the believers what they do with their life. Those that are persevering in doing good. A.W. Pink was once asked, is another theologian, he was once asked, how are you keeping yourself these days? Being A.W. Pink, and I love the sarcasm here. He said this, he replied, I am not, I am being kept. He understood that his perseverance was the very fact, it was a gift that was given to him by God. Steve Lawson put it another way when it, talking about how this describes believers in our text in verse 7 of Romans 2. He said, another way to say that we have become believers are those who are persistent and persevering in our lives for the Lord Jesus Christ. We have received from Christ and are partakers of Christ. He said this, you've heard me, and he says, you've heard him say it before. I love the way he uses all the F's in this statement. Listen, he says, the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. That describes what Paul's talking about here. Indicating that a person was not a true believer if he fizzled out. A person that quits the faith, that's a flawed counterfeit faith. If one does not persevere faithfully to the end of their life, it's because God is not the author of their saving faith. It's not God that saved them. When God, God saves you and grants you faith, it is a faith that causes one to persevere in obedience through one's life. You notice in our text, if you look in verse 7, it says, those who are, uh, are patient in well-doing, seeking for glory and honor. This person at the judgment seat of Christ, the believer, are the ones who persevere, but they're also the ones who seek glory. True believers continually persistently seek God's glory. Primary God's glory, not just our glory. They seek to honor God. They see the value and the worth of God, the love of God, and they value and they ascribe great worth to God. 
There are people, the lifestyle also is one who seeks immortality. It literally means, immortality doesn't mean just to live long. It literally means to seek that which cannot decay or corrupt. That's the gospel. That's what God did for us. That's our salvation. We read in 1 Peter chapter 1, it's incorruptible, imperishable, kept in heaven for you by God's great power. This, that's what a true believer, his lifestyle is one that doesn't seek things that are corruptible. We don't put much value in whether the Seahawks are going to win or not because they're corruptible, right? Right? We're back to the days when they, are, they look like they're going to be great and then they lose and then they look like they're going to be bad and they win. You know, who knows these days? But we don't put much stock in that, right? We put all of our value in things that can't, decay. Put our value in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't put in our value in our money. We don't put our value in our cars. We don't put our value in our work. We don't put our value in our relationships. We put our value what is imperishable, incorruptible. That's our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life in immortality to the light through the gospel in 2 Timothy 1.10. By the way, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we see that the believer's judgment leads to eternal life because God judges ultimately on the work of Christ for the one that's a believer but we're going to still be held accountable for all our deeds. That's God's judgment. Look at uh, verse uh, 7 and 8, and skip the way that he intertwines this. He says in verse 7, he says, Honor and immortality, he, being God, will give eternal life. The believer's judgment, a believer that has been saved and persevered to the end, by God's great power and his strength, the believer's judgment leads to eternal life. What leads to the great white throne of judgment. In Revelations chapter 20, in verse 11 through 15, we see this. It says, And then I saw a great white throne, and him who seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them And I saw the dead and great and small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them and were judged, each one of them, according to what he has done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is unbelievers only. It determines the eternal punishment. We see these two groups. We have believers and now we have unbelievers. Both have judgments that are levied on them. One that is based on God's work and one one that's based on the work of the unbeliever. Those By the way, look at their lifestyle in in verse 9. It says, But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, 
they will be wrath and fury for them. They will be tribulation and distress. We see that these are those who are persistent in doing evil. This is their lifestyle. Those who are self-seeking, those who reject the truth, those who follow evil. Did you just notice there, the unbeliever's judgment leads to God's eternal wrath. James 3, verses 13 through 16, talks about the wisdom of the world. And, and it talks about it in verse 13. It says, Who is the wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you are bitter, and but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. And that's what we see today. So God sees everybody in two groups, the saved and the unsaved. And even if you're saved, you're still going to be held account for the things that you do and what God has given you. Those that aren't saved are going to be held ultimately, they're going to get their just rewards for the lifestyle of disobedience. What lifestyle, what habits form your life? What part, what judgment do you stand in? What is in your future? What do you have to look forward to? Psalms 51, David spoke apropos in saying this because he could, he can, through the power of the Holy Spirit, could see what was coming. Sometimes we think if we just do enough good or we just do enough sacrifices that everything will be good in God's eyes. But he said in verse 16 of Psalm 51, it says, talking to the Lord, it says, For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You would not be uh, pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite or repentant heart. Oh God, you will not despise that. Here's the thing is, is, is your heart truly repentant before the Lord? You will have to give account what's in your heart. God knows your heart. You know what's in your heart. Will you be judged according to the work of God? Will you be judged as a believer? Still having to give account for what you do, for what God has given you based on the cross? They moved the cross on me. <laughs> I knew I was going to do that. I was, before I was telling you, remind us over here. Are you going to be... What are you going to do with what God did for you? God died on the cross. He took all of your sin to the cross. And he gave you his righteousness to be the power to live your life. What are you doing with that? That's why he says, be holy because I am holy. He transferred and took the weight of your sin. And gave you the light of his life. What are you doing with that glory? That's the real question as we think about the, these two judgments. 
Why is God right and just in all of his judgments? It's because he knows the heart. He knows your works. Let me give you another perspective. Sinclair Ferguson and One of his books, he was talking about this in regards to this passage. He says, special privilege leads to special responsibility. Think about this. Amos chapter 3 in verses 1 through 2. Amos is a book about judgment. It's a hard book. I've been wanting to preach through this, but I've been studying it and I haven't felt uh, great about preaching it yet. I still have been studying it for the last 20 years. <laughs> but I started to preach it once and I quit after the first uh, three messages. <laughs> but Amos chapter 3, verses 1 through 2, listen to this. It says, Hear the words that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Just because of special privilege doesn't mean you have no responsibility. Do you get that? Listen to what he says. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Known. Have a relationship with. Because of the work on the cross, we've been brought into fellowship, into the family of God. He knows you. He loves you with special privilege of being a part of the family of God comes special responsibility. Here's the thing is is that a lot of times religious people believe that they're judged on special privilege. Like, oh, I'm a part of the right religion. Or I do, I'm a part of good things. I do a lot of good things. Here's the reality. You're not judged on having privileges, but judged on what you do with those privileges. What are you doing with the adoption that God has given you, being a part of the family of God? Are you honoring God? Say, Pastor, what, what, what do we do with this? Are you seeking a lifestyle of glorifying God or glorifying yourself? Are you seeking a lifestyle of honoring God, giving him what he's due, or trying to seek honor for yourself? Are you seeking those things which are corruptible, like relationships, power, prestige, privilege, or are you seeking your relationship with the Lord, your salvation. The goal, the gospel is the power of that relationship. Without the gospel, you're going to struggle. You know how we live well as a family of God? The gospel. It's what Christ did for you. It's his righteousness. It's the gospel is the good news of what Jesus did on the cross for your sin it actually reveals God's righteousness in your life to be able to live rightly. It's the power to live rightly. It's Don't just trust in the gospel and then sit there. Carry the gospel in your hearts, in your minds, loving the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul and with all your might and live with the peace and joy. Did you notice what he says here in verse 10? I love verse 10. It says, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does this lifestyle of good. Peace and joy. Peace and joy. We hear that during this time. And why do people struggle during Christmas time? Because many times we seek, incorru- we seek, seek corruptible things rather than that which is incorruptible. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we would realize that our life, we still are held responsible for the things in our life, whether we are believers or we're unbelievers, whether we put our faith in the Lord, in your work that you've done for us on the cross, or whether we are, there are those that are putting their faith in their own works and their selfish, in selfishness and evil things. Lord, I pray that we'd realize that we are held responsible. There you are right to judge because you know our heart. You know the condition of our life. You know our works. You know our deeds. We are held responsible. But Lord, may it be so that we may not be confused that your judgment is right on the basis of all these things, but that's not our salvation. That's not how we are made right. We are justified by your work on the cross. We are made alive through the power of the Spirit when you show us the depths of our depravity, that we are rebellious by nature, that our flesh is evil, and that we are not good. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seek good in and of ourselves. We just don't do that. If there is any way that it is good in us, it's because it's your work that lives through us. Lord, may we seek and put our hope and rest it fully on what you've done for us. May we repent and surrender our life to you in that repentance, trusting and what you did on the cross for our sins. Lord, if anyone's here that have been putting their, a false hope on their works and, their, and how religious they are, that they would turn from that and turn to you and repent and realize that even all of their good works are as filthy rags in your sight. It's tainted by our flesh. It doesn't compare to you It isn't holy as you are holy. But Lord, that they would repent and turn to you and say, I'm trusting in what you did when you died on the cross for our sin and rose again, conquering death once and for all. And Lord, I pray that they would, in that realization, that Lord, you would save them, that they would call in that, that they would call upon you Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And I pray that we too, that have been called and have been saved, that are believers that have been born again into the family of God, not into this earthly family, would also realize that what have we done with this faith, with this life that has been purchased by your blood through the work on the cross? What are we doing with that 
life, this new life that you've purchased for us? Are we squandering it? Are we wasting it? May we turn to you and may we, Lord, give all honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray.